Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're on Team Human, where we envision bottom-up, human-centered answers to the challenges imposed by the operating systems of top-down control. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, a celebration of the quirky ambiguity that keeps people from ever becoming predictable, a place where anomalous behavior is the new opposition. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, animator Michael Fredrickson. I almost think of it as this thing that happens when your cognitive capacity has been overwhelmed. You're trying to comprehend something that has a magnitude that you almost don't have enough neurological connections to deal with, and you experience awe when your brain sort of overflows like that. Michael will be explaining the function of awe, yeah, A-W-E, awe, in our ongoing evolution as a species and a society. It's time for intervention in the machine. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. I'm awestruck, and I'm on Team Human. The Team Human community is growing stronger by the day. I invite you to support the people helping me make this show by subscribing to us at patreon.com slash teamhuman or coming to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. All supporters gain instant access to the Team Human Slack channel, where we discuss ideas surfaced on the show, consider new topics and guests, and simply support one another in our ongoing quest for meaning, solidarity, and social justice. I've been enjoying Twin Peaks a lot in its new incarnation. I don't know if you all know, but uh, the Showtime Network has cajoled or welcomed David Lynch to make new episodes of Twin Peaks, the series of 25 years ago. And uh, you don't really need to remember, which I don't, the original series very much, to get a whole lot out of this new series on an experiential level. And I've read some of the published reviews, 
And the weird thing was, they seem to be confounded and annoyed by the very features of the show that are intriguing me so much. It's these long, sustained shots. There was one, uh, like a five-minute shot of just a guy sweeping the floor in a bar, or uh, three people standing on a staircase, one of them smoking a cigarette, there's not really any lines, and they're changing their positions a lot, and you can you can either interpret or read into a scene like that, oh, look at this one, she's trying to look sexy, she keeps changing her position, and then she kind of realizes that it's futile to be doing what she's doing, and then her sort of sexy postures give way to kind of uncomfortable shifting. And yeah, it takes a long time for that thing to happen. And there's no lines. Or there's another one where a, a woman's asked to leave the room and she's got to get up off the couch and put on her shoes and put on her lipstick and put on her sweater and then get out. And it takes like 10 minutes to happen. And we're all watching this thing happen. And it's it's enjoyable for me. And I hope it's not just that I'm old or bored or something. It's enjoyable because we're watching actors try to emulate human behavior or people making eye contact or even really crazy stuff. You know, that David Lynch crazy stuff. People who look to be as if they're in space stations or other planets or in other dimensions and, you know, just turning a switch and it takes them, you know, 10 minutes to get over to the other side of the room to turn this switch. And when you watch something like that, you have to let go of the sorts of narrative expectations that you employ when you're watching a regular movie, trying to keep track of facts in a regular movie or TV show because you know it's going to be needed. It might be a hint to something you're going to see later to figure out who the who the bad guy is. No, in this kind of cinema you really have to surrender to this to this other thing in some ways it's almost what reality television was trying to do or what made it popular for a while which was just watching people you know you'd watch cops which was one of the very first reality shows and you would just Watch, this is what real people live like. Even though they're criminals or, or you know, strange people, at least you'd see on TV inside a real person's house. I remember even before reality television, my grandmother's building had a uh, security camera in the elevator. And you could watch it somehow from the cable television because I guess you'd see who's coming upstairs. And I used to just sit and watch the elevator and the entry stairwell for hours, just seeing people come in the building with their groceries or talking or holding hands or whatever they're doing. And most importantly, when, when you see it recreated by a Lynch or a Kubrick used to do stuff like this, it transcends that traditional linear narrative that we've gotten so used to, that beginning, middle, end, that clockwork-like mechanical product that 99% of commercial movies seem to fall into. It, it's what Aristotle noticed. 2,000 years ago, that you create a character that the audience likes, you put that character through a series of trials that put him or her into danger, and when the audience can't take it anymore, that character is in so much danger or in, in so much strife that 
the gods or the playwright or something provides a solution. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger finds a bigger gun or the character finds family values or Dora confounds the the troll and gets to the magical forest. Whatever it is, then you get your your crisis, your climax and your relief. You know, so it's you create a character the audience like that that character goes up the inclined plane of tension till we can't take it anymore and then there's the solution and we will accept whatever solution the storyteller has for us if we've gone all the way up into tension because we want to get out of tension and then that becomes the the classic formula for every play every movie every 30 second commercial you know the girl wants to go to the prom she's picking out her dress and she notices she's got a zit you know, and now five seconds into that commercial, we know there's going to be another 20, 25 seconds until we get the solution. You know, she tries to pop it. She gets infected. She tries bad cream. It gets worse until finally she finds the Oxy-5 or the Clearasil or whatever it is. And the psychedelic colors come out of the tube and are all around her face. And then ding dong, the boy's there to take her to the prom and the pimple's gone. And yay. You know, that's the standard crisis climax relief or what I used to call the male orgasm curve of narrative dramatic fiction, you know, crisis climax sleep. And it's a standard structure and you can make almost any subject, any property, as Hollywood likes to call it, fit that format where the the bad guys, you know, hoisted on his own petard. It's these perfect little uh, story structural elements that give that audience the maximum catharsis and sense of of completion, of finality. They got their money's worth because the story resolved. And then the fact that the audience goes to these things is used to justify this structure as the business model for every single movie out there. You know, oh no, it's not neoliberalism or capitalism or anything of the kind. It's not the insertion of some faulty value system into culture. No, no, no. It's what people want to go see. The box office is the proof that this is human nature and not some top-down program. But I challenge that. I think that this is what people have been trained to want to go see. In a world where we ache for conclusion, where uncertainty is equated with anxiety instead of life, But I contend that it's the unresolved moments that keep us alive and thinking. You know, that's the real difference between entertainment and art. Entertainment uses techniques to hold us within its spell and then rewards us. And it rewards our submission with the answer. We don't make sense out of it. The sense is made for us. No matter how complicated, even like some Christopher Nolan movie like Inception with time travel and all these things and different dreams within dreams, it's still embedded with the right answer, which you figure out at the end. Whether it's time travel or nested stories, there's a right answer. Oh, that's what happened. Oh, I understand Westworld. They're traveling through three different times at once. Art doesn't have a right answer. It only has right questions. You know, and if there are answers, they're constructed by the audience provisionally and collaboratively after the fact. As if to tell us the meaning of life is the meaning we make of it. 
I'm DC Vito, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Mushan Zeraviv, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Arthur Brock, and I'm on Team Human. I am Tessa Lena, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Arya Sirius, a.k.a. Ken Goffman, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. And I want to welcome today our guest, Michael Fredrickson, an animator at Pixar who's been writing and talking and teaching a lot about the kinds of awe that he's been creating for those films and what the role of awe is in our personal and collective development. I've called you Michael Fredrickson for two reasons and like I do everything on Team Human is one because I think uh, what you have to say is interesting to our listeners and two because what you have to say and what you've researched is really germane to the book I'm writing, the Team Human Manifesto. Mm -hmm. So uh, the thing that got me uh, most interested in speaking to you right now, um, in addition to all the work you do with computers and rendering and art and and scene making for, for Pixar and other kinds of art, is your work with awe. And I mean awe, A-W-E, awe. Because I've been looking for different ways of describing what it is that's different about human beings from just regular computational forms. You know, what makes us different than computers? What's special? And how do we mine that specialness to make progress as individuals and as a species? And awe, to me, seems like one of those things, one of those areas that we can talk about but can't quite perfectly define. It's one of those strange, quirky nooks and crannies of being human. So I guess you could start us by saying, how did you come upon awe and what fueled your fascination with with mining into it? Uh, You know, I think awe ended up being the confluence of, of just about everything I've found myself interested in over the years. And it, it almost became like this inevitable thing to look into, especially after um, some of the work I did on Inside Out a couple years ago. For me, it was precisely how difficult it is to articulate what the experience of awe feels like and what it is and, and why it exists that kind of got me interested in it. I think my entry point to it initially was looking at, you know, in, in filmmaking and in, in narrative, like why, say, you know, a director or any kind of storyteller might be trying to draw out a particular emotion in us. And awe, I felt like every time I would ask someone about it, you know, they would usually resort to rather saying, rather than saying how it made their body feel or something like that, they'd talk about the experience that caused them to, to feel awe. And I kind of just set out to see, like, well, first of all, you know, what research has been done on this recently? But also, if you try to apply that to storytelling, when and why does it make sense to try to make people feel awe? Right. Like, there's these moments, if we think back, there are these moments in movies where 
And there are, you're right, there are specific act breaks, but where you like come upon, oh, here is the the world of the Avatar people, or here's the rooftops of London that, you know, Peter Pan's going to fly us out at, or here's the great city, you know, in the Game of Thrones where we, you know, have that giant panorama of yeah. some new city. So there are these moments of of awe. And, and what you're identifying is that we tend to put them into these, these very specific moments in a story. Yeah. And I was, I was kind of curious as to, you know, why might we do that? Because in looking at the, the work of different directors of both the directors we have at Pixar and, you know, directors outside of, uh, outside of the studio, I was just kind of asking the question of, you know, I think in, in talking to different artists over the years and myself as an artist, I've found people who have different levels of comfort with how much they want to talk about the, the conscious act of producing art. Like some people seem to be made really uncomfortable by talking about having almost mechanical tricks to producing something creative. Like they're a lot uh -huh. more comfortable saying, oh, this just comes out of my intuition and it's something I just feel and it, it comes out of me. Right, because it feels more, more contrived or something if you've manufactured it. Yeah, I mean, to me that seems to be something that... that uh, Artists, you know, a lot of artists seem to be concerned with is that the spontaneity of, of creation and right. overlap with with awe here. You know, you mentioned it as being this thing that's kind of hard to articulate and is almost a little bit ephemeral and har hard to grasp. I kind of wondered, like, I think some directors, some storytellers are instinctively using it at these specific times in a story arc. And I was just wondering, you know, why might you do that? Mm -hmm. The first kind of step in that process for me was understanding what what it is as an emotion and so you know that led to you know looking into some research that kind of defines it as something you experience when you encounter something that's both vast and novel so that vastness doesn't have to just be spatial vastness like uh, with the grand canyon or something like that it could also be the vastness of somebody's talent um, the vastness of time like i remember feeling it when i saw the sagrada familia in barcelona and it was both huge and also i was just overwhelmed by the amount of time that went into constructing that human effort and then also right. novel i mean if you're seeing the grand canyon every day you're probably not going to feel awe anew every time but that's why people tend to feel it, you know, at huge vistas when thinking about the size of the universe or the power of a god. Th these things that have a perceptual vastness that, that somehow exceeds their perceptual limit. And right. so there's those characteristics of the, you know, the stimuli that produce awe. And then some of what I learned in some of the research that went into Inside Out was that when you're researching the emotions... One really helpful thing to do is ask what physiological changes you go through when you're experiencing an emotion. So there's not a universally, you know, cross-cultural agreed upon expression that one makes when they're experiencing right. awe, but it tends to be head forward, mouth agape, eyes open. And so that kind of points to maybe the idea that you're trying to take in as much as possible. You're trying to taste and smell and see as much as you possibly can, because the thing you're taking in is so enormous that you want to maximize your, your sensory input. Right. Um, people describe, you know, feeling goosebumps. There's actually some studies that say that awe can, like, ultimately reduce inflammation and stuff like that. So right. if you're super inflamed, 
you know, go check out the Grand Canyon. <laughs> well, that's because it's releasing certain, you know, cytokines or something that, that as, then affects your body. As an extremely uh, amateur awe uh, scientist, I, uh, I agree. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the thing I got really interested in was this extremely recent work in kind of evolutionary psychology that's right. asking the question of like, what might be the purpose of awe? You know, why have we been kind of, why is evolution selected for us to continue having this very peculiar feeling? And right. Well, to what advantage to the cave people was it to look up in the sky and go, <gasps> how did that help? Yeah. Right. No, it seems, you know, I was thinking a bunch about the, the root of the word awesome and, and awful because they're still around. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting that, you know, awesome, something that's just a little bit awe-ish. You know that one's that one's still around to be, uh, you know, if there's a little awe, it's it's positive. But uh, if something is full of awe, um, you know, then we consider it awful, ah. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I think is kind of kind of interesting because it it almost speaks to the the history of the emotion. I think in researching emotions, there's, there's this term I've come across, um, which is the valence of the emotion, you know, whether or not it's subjectively considered positive or negative. So, you know, most right. people would describe happiness as having a positive valence and sadness as, as at least initially, uh, you know, fear and sadness feeling kind of negative, same right. with disgust. Most Westerners, at least, describe awe as being a positive emotion, which I think is super interesting because in the same way that comedy and horror are exploitations of our experience of surprise. And there's like a razor thin line between those two things. Like, I think it really just comes down to the stakes. You know, terror and awe seem to be, you know, very closely related. That there's almost when, when awe is positive, you're experiencing something vast and novel, but something that is not mortally threatening to you still. So I think right. a long time ago, you know, when you were thinking of a of a chaotic god or of a universe that we we didn't have a, even a basic understanding of, you know, awe was a, a a lot more of a negative feeling. Right, like lightning or something. Or, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think of uh, you know, lightning's a fearful one. I think of you know, in the modern day, people often describe feeling awe when they see the aurora borealis, which to me like completely makes sense, right? Because we're not seeing too many bizarre magnetic watercolor skies on a daily basis you know right or when astronauts go up into skylab and look at earth and they experience awe it's like well yeah you've never seen earth from space before so right. it's gonna make awe. but 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 going back you were you were doing some research then or at least mm -hmm. some some meditation on what might be the sort of evolutionary psychological purpose of awe for people did you did you right. come up with reasons for it well, so the the earlier research I had seen on this, and you know, when I say early, I think that place is around like two thousand one or so. I right, mean, uh, it's kind of like ancient a, days. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of a long gripe of mine <laughs> that, despite the just fundamental importance of you know the experience of having emotions that we don't have control over, sort of how recent the the you know the study of the of their contribution to our humanity ultimately is it's kind of been in the realm of poetry and philosophy and the arts for a pretty alarmingly long time while we focused on our consciousness you know mm -hmm. um 
But some of the earlier research kind of pointed to maybe the, the purpose of awe was to help us organize into groups. So maybe you'd feel awe at the power of a really strong leader, um, and that would make you feel kind of humbled and part of something bigger, and then maybe that might help you organize in a community that would then have a greater chance for survival. Now, I mean, that one, as a, you know, having almost no formal background in evolutionary psychology, you know, I'm always curious if people are sort of back-solving to these conclusions of saying, can I come up with a narrative that, you know, explains why this, this thing might exist? Right. I well, that's that... all we can do. I mean, but, you know, so you use an example like that. I mean, we're, I'm trying to think of it as cavemen, but all I can think of is like Hitler at the Nuremberg rallies, you know, shooting aircraft, uh, you know, aircraft lights into the sky. And sure. Well, everyone I mean, was awestruck at the, you know, or a Grateful Dead concert, you know, these right. giant rave like, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, it's the same sort of thing. You people go into a state of awe because it's like, oh, my God, look at these 5000 people. Right. Well, I mean, I think with any emotional response like that, you can either you can sort of use it for good or for evil. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, I've often thought uh, our proclivity to recognize lots of different things as faces you know like you look at a wall outlet and see it as a face is one of the reasons we can deal with animation and the abstraction mm -hmm. of animation is because you can buy into that being a, a character when it isn't too close to the real thing you know similarly our like desperate need to accommodate something with our model of the world is one of the reasons that magic is entertaining because you're kind of exploiting the fact that when something levitates you so desperately and instinctively need to square that up with your understanding that things don't float and you're like right. almost instinctively driven to explain how is that happening because if that is really floating i can't assimilate that i have to accommodate and i need to now change my model of the world and that's one of the things that sort of makes magic entertaining so i'm really fascinated by things like that where either you know animation or magic these things have almost evolved out of their relationship with these emotions that we all inherently feel right it, it's interesting though you know when you when i'm trying to think about your your difference between kind of awesome and awful yeah and the the evolutionary purpose i mean in a certain level the the we're talking about a kind of a, a emotional cognitive overload yes. in other words that this is so novel yes. and so vast that it throws me into a different state now right. if it's a dinosaur popping out through the woods mm -hmm. or a comet coming towards me that's not going to be awe i'm going to go into fight or flight i mean i'm yeah You're i'm going to go, go it's going to awe terror. but then overflow into terror. Whereas the same sight, like a, uh, a sunset, I might have seen a sunset every day, but then if my wife or my child says, no, but look, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> and then you look at the sunset and I see it in a way I've never seen it before. Mm -hmm. You know, I start connecting things and now the sky, the giant, you know, the giant sun, and it could, I can ease into a state of awe, I know, you know I, which is different. I almost think of it as this thing that happens when your cognitive capacity has been overwhelmed to some degree. Right. Like you've almost, you're trying to comprehend something that has a magnitude that you almost don't have enough neurological connections to deal with, and you experience awe when your brain sort of overflows like that. So then there's the question of sort of what purpose is there for that? And so, you know, there was that, the group, um, the group assembly and uh, group dynamics theory, but the one that has been absolutely fascinating me and has been making me wonder 
how it relates to the evolution of the story structures and the narratives that we all seem to respond to most readily was a study that was done at ASU last year. And it effectively asked this question, okay, let's, let's uh, take an example of an assumption that, a very simple assumption that people might have about the world. So their standing in this study was the assumption, well, here, I'll ask you now, uh, what are some of the things that might be on the table at a romantic dinner? Uh, candle, wine, uh, Two pairs of hands, a rose. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah. This is a very beautiful scene, by the way. Thank you. Well, well dressed. I went with the standard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's uh, that's exactly what they were hoping for in the study. Was the the stand-in for people's model of the world um, was that most people assume that candles would be on the table at a romantic dinner. So in this study. The first thing they did was expose three different groups to these emotional stimuli. So they showed the awe group that powers a 10 video from the, I think from the 70s, where they sort of zoom out as far as possible into the cosmos and then down into the human uh-huh. skin. Um, and so that was supposed to induce awe in that group. Another group saw somebody kind of unexpectedly winning a gold medal. They were supposed to feel happiness or joy. And then another group, a neutral group, just watched someone assemble the cinder block wall. <laughs> <laughs> that, that group had a really fun time. They then told all the groups the same five-minute story about a romantic dinner where they very specifically did not describe there being candles on the table and gave them a distracting task after that and then asked some follow-up questions, um, one of which was, hey, were there candles on the table? And after the, the study was done, you know, they noticed that the, the awe group consistently did better than any other group at remembering that there were not candles on the table. So one of the, you know, hypotheses that came out of this, uh, you know, one of the, you know, potential conclusions that came out of the study was that maybe um, by making you temporarily feel humbled, um, you know, in relationship to something vast and, and huge, maybe awe has this temporary effect of stunning you and reminding you that you don't know everything and that maybe you should look at information, new information for what it is and not apply kind of bumper sticker thinking to it. So, you know, when things are going fine in your life, uh, you might hear about a romantic dinner and go, oh, I know all about romantic dinners. There's going to be candles on the table. But if maybe you've just been made to feel small and humbled and made to feel, ah, maybe there's a kind of effect after that where you say, yeah, maybe I'm going to actually really listen uh, closely to, to this story and not assume that, I, that my usual model of the world is going to work. That's really interesting because, you know, the, the, the other sort of main area of perception these days uh, has been helping us understand that people don't actually see things. We have, you know, neurological input and then we construct and project the things. So I'm looking at a movie about, I'm looking at a movie of what my senses are, are assembling. So because we're assembling movies all the time, a lot of the times we assemble stuff that isn't even there. We assume and assemble pictures and ideas. So awe almost wipes the slate clean yes. for you to then only assemble based on what you're seeing now. It's almost like a rebirth of a sort. Yeah, I, you know, I think about it as a as a kind of that because you've been cognitively overwhelmed, you've effectively blown your mind. And that maybe (laughs) that now your mind is kind of clear for for a few minutes where, you know, where you could take in new information fresh. I found this um, this quote in an interview with Kubrick about The Shining, where he was just, uh, you know, he seemed almost a little bit stressed in thinking 
in hoping that people didn't just go see his films and take away from them what they already believed. You know, that people would go in and just construct narratives based on their pre-existing models of the world. And he said, you know, I wonder how often people are fundamentally um, changed by a piece of art. He said, you know, maybe if you're 15 or 16 years old, you know, you might be ready to do this. And I loved it because he was talking about it in the discussion of his use of the subconscious in The Shining. So I think he, you know, does all sorts of tricks like messing with the uh, spatial layout of the hotel. Right. Now, all these things to kind of say, you know, rather than using the plot and dictating. I mean, a good teacher you makes you go through an emotional experience, right, rather than just dictating the, the conclusion of the lesson. And so I think he was always working with, like, how can we use narrative and emotion to, to communicate the, the point? And so I am, um, yeah, as soon as I heard this awe study, I was like, oh, you know, maybe this is part of the answer here. Maybe this is like a really, really well-told story, you know, might make us, part, you know, one answer for why we might want to go through the emotion of awe is it sort of primes us um, to internalize the lesson of the story. Right. Or not to. In other words, mm -hmm. part of what I've been uh, uh, fighting against these days are all of these TV shows and movies that enforce resolution mm -hmm. on us, you know, where, where even the ones that are supposedly, uh, strange, like a Westworld or yes. Memento or Inception, they're really <laughs> still, there's the right way to exactly. understand what happened at the end. Whereas yes. with a Kubrick movie, it's like, wait a minute, what happened here? Or, or even the audience enough for there to be some ambiguity, right? Right. To, 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 because that's art. I mean, the other is basically capitalism. You know, it's like there's a way. Here's the product. We've given you the thing. Don't tell anyone what happened because that's a spoiler and you're sure. going to destroy our IP. Um, but real art makes you question the world you're in. It keeps you in a living state. Well, when I hear that, I, I hear you setting up a dichotomy. Like I, I break that down to what I turn everything back into, which is kind of the spectrum between reason on one side and passion on the other, right? And to me, a really clean cut story that doesn't allow for any ambiguity is a very mechanical kind of rote, reasoned, conscious thing. And a totally, you know, tripped out, holy mountain, like you're just feeling <laughs> it experiential thing is, you know, what we often describe as art, this subjective kind of very analog thing. And to me, I really believe that the best stuff is somewhere in the middle. It has a tasteful right. contrast and balance of both of those things. I think Kubrick, for example, walked a really great line of being able to have enough structure that his stories weren't just, you know, experiential nonsense that not many people could relate to. But right. also, it's hard to get through it without some semblance of narrative. Exactly. I think he struck a really good balance. And, uh, you know, so to me, um, trying to keep those things in harmony is a really fun challenge because, you know, we have both of those things in our minds. You know, we, we have the capacity to, to reason and create very sort of strict formal explanations of, of things. And we also have the ability to feel and have very analog and subjective experiences. Right. I mean, and he did, he did screw with us in that movie. I mean, there's the scene where the, uh, the, the old black guy is sitting in his room thinking about the boy. And sometimes you look at him and there's these 
nothing behind him on the wall. And then you cut back to him and there's a picture of this, you know, naked, you know, this, this velvet painting of a naked uh, woman. It's like, is the picture there? Is it not there? And it's not a continuity error. You know, this was intentional or the, the corridors in the hotel don't match up architecturally. You just go and wait a minute, where did he just, he just went left and now he's on the right. And it's like, is that a mistake? It's like, no, he's, doing something to our brain, right? You know, I, I think in that case, you know, those those were decisions that are, you know, you're always building a mental spatial map of any environment you're encountering. And when that's violated, it's not something that you stand up and consciously scream about and say, hey, you know, that window went to the outside before and now it's, you know, it goes to the interior. Uh-huh. Um, but the kind of, you know, subtle realization that... Um, you know, that something's not right adds to a feeling of eeriness. So you're, you're kind of playing with things that are just below that line of um, conscious recognition. And, you know, I think he walked that line really, really well. Where this kind of awe thing comes into play, you know, and, uh, or at least what, what I've been wondering about was, okay, you know, I talked about that, that thing of, hey, maybe magic evolved partially out of our need to accommodate and, and square things up um, with our understanding of the world and you know animation partially takes advantage of our you know uh, desire to see narrative but also our ability to see a face um, in something that is not a human face maybe part of the reason awe is used in natural you know story structures is because hey if I've just kind of blown your mind if you've been made to see something that um, you know primes you to receive new information that might be a really good thing to do some somewhere around the end of the first act, you know, because, uh, you know, now you're going to be set up to, to take something in. I think your curiosity about story structures that aren't as heavy handed um, with uh, having a neat conclusion is especially interesting, you know, in the era of gaming and open world games, taking up a, a larger slice of the, the entertainment world, because in a way, I think, there are certain, I don't want to say morals, but like messages that are almost incompatible with the traditional kind of hero's journey. You know, if you just give people the most standard version of the hero's journey, like, you know, I don't necessarily think you can deal well with what most of life is like, which is ambiguity and having to wrestle with a lot of analog kind of unclear, subjective things. So it's made me wonder, like, are, you know, mini plot structures or, you know, games where you go around and explore and you're not following a linear narrative, could they potentially be more well-suited to messages that are, you know, say the theme you want to communicate is things just aren't really cut and dry all the time. Well, in a film, if I go to a movie and I see an indie film where, it's very unclear if the character, main character lives or dies at the end or, you know, what the conclusion is. Those don't tend to do as well commercially because people like some, you know, some resolution. Uh, you know, some people will write that off as a reflection of the taste of the audience. But I think, of course, you're go- some people are going to feel that way. In a film, I don't have any interaction with the narrative. I can't I can't affect it. So it, it, it feels good to have resolution in something where you have no role in the outcome. But I wonder if in more interactive storytelling or, you know, uh, if those 
methods of, of storytelling might be more well suited to ambiguity because at least you have a role in it and you have time to speculate and, and think about how things are unclear because it resembles life a little bit more than a clear cut story. You know, that's, I've been wondering about that though. You know, I, I'm, uh, intuitively suspicious of, you know, virtual reality type entertainment. I mean, partly because I understand that it's really two or three corporations that own 99.9% of the VR tech, you know, whether it's, you know, Google, Facebook, or, or Sony or somebody. And I can't imagine that they're using it to try to open new avenues of human imagination and intelligence when they've been responsible for the opposite in all their other work. They're more towards human manipulation. But, right. you know, VR as a world, I mean, they're, they're, yearning for this, you know, verisimilitude, this, this, uh, granular copying of the real, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm wondering how open-ended they'll be willing to make those experiences. Well, this is why I, you know, I try to tend to ignore their efforts and focus on the indie game community, which to mm. me is where most of the real interesting experimentations with those those formats are going on i mean the the folks i know you know in that world i think are doing the most important work to see you know how vr could potentially be a you know a humanizing art form rather than a a dehumanizing one those are the places where people are saying you know can i make an experience with this that helps someone empathize more or by putting you in you know, a situation that you like shoes you could you couldn't otherwise fill, um, you know, make you think through something that because you have a role in and an agency in, in acting something out, you have a different relationship to it. Right. Then you would. In other words, so if you watched a movie of a little Syrian immigrant or refugee who's attacked and killed and starves and you're helpless watching a thing. Oh, that's horrible. Give me my popcorn. I want to go home. Whereas yeah. Whereas if you're in the experience, you're thinking making the choices as that person, it might be different. I just think to me that the most fundamental thing, there's no shortage of people like us sitting around and ruminating about what, you know, about how VR might live or die. And right. I just, I don't care to do it too much more. It's like, <laughs> I people people need to make shorts and, and not, not necessarily shorts in the uh, the way we think of them with short films, but they need to make sketches. Uh, they need to make lots and lots of sketches to say, is this mechanic enjoyable? Is this humanizing? Is it dehumanizing? How does it interact with our emotions? Does it get a point across? Do, do people like the feeling that this gives them? And they just have to make a lot of stuff and prototype it. If it feels good, uh, you know, it'll survive. And hopefully, you know, that doesn't get, you know, <laughs> co-opted, uh, you know, to dehumanize us in some way. But even if that does happen... You know, I'm confident that the people who are doing it with the intention of, uh, you know, making making people feel good and delivering a message, you know, they're going to keep doing that. Exactly. C'est la guerre, you know. We're we're, we're in an arms race against, you know, those who would use the same tools for the opposite purpose. But what's your – or what are some of the litmus tests you use to decide if a piece of work is humanizing or dehumanizing? Wow. That is a a big question. Um, Yeah. (laughs) For me, it's heavily dependent on the context, but but some of the things I look at are, you know, the amount of vulnerability that the storyteller is showing. I mean, I love pieces of art that come from personal experience. And when somebody is trying to 
I believe, honestly work out something that is difficult to share with a mass audience. And they're trying to say, I want to, you know, through this piece of art, through this narrative or this interactive experience, give you an opportunity to experience what I went through and what my conclusion was so that that might help you if you go through something similar. To me, that is extremely humanizing because it involves empathizing and effectively an artist saying, you know, I want to, I want to connect with this audience and, and help them by explaining what I went through. You know, I also, you know, look to say, does this thing encourage me to interact with other human beings more or does it encourage me to interact right. with them less? Now, it's difficult because, you know, we always get into these questions of like, well, is it in some fundamental moral way imperative that we interact with other people? It would be hard for somebody to say, you know, yes, that's fundamental. I happen to believe, you know, that it is. I don't, I don't want to live in the matrix. <laughs> um, right. So, you know, just like I said that I think some of the best art walks a careful line between appealing to the conscious and the subconscious and balancing passion and reason, I like you know, pieces of art that don't depict horrific, exploitative, technological dystopia and don't, you know, depict we give it all up and become completely agrarian. You know, they, I think we're in need of more and more art that depicts a world where those things are in, in balance. It's kind of stymied me sometimes in thinking about, you know, the art I want to produce, because if that's the final conclusion that you want to get across, well, it's hard to do that with a big action sequence, for example. Right. So that's that's what's kind of led me to these more, well, is that then better communicated interactively? Or, you know, and I, but I do believe that the solution isn't to sit around and philosophize about it. It's to really prototype short things and see what works and what doesn't. Right, work. prototype and iterate, prototype and iterate. Yeah, I mean, the, the I was a little surprised. I mean, as a theater person and then a film person who was, fed up with the Aristotelian narrative because of just how much, you know, winners and losers and how conclusive it was. And, you know, uh, uh, I thought that interactivity, and this is back in 88, 89, I thought, oh, here comes the net, interactivity and digital technology, which will put the storytelling media back in the hands of people. And they're going to be able to, and they will somehow naturally tell less conclusive um, types of stories. Yet what we've seen, you know, from now through Trump is in some sense the opposite, is people groping towards more certainty, more du more duality, more polarity. I mean, what are your suggestions for, or where have you started to see people inject ambiguity back into their uh, content and interface creation? And, you know, and what sort of guiding principles would you have for sort of maintaining the ability to uh, uh, keep things open-ended? Is it really just as simple as not needing to make a lot of money off it right away? Well, I don't, I think that is a, can be kind of an oversimplification. I think your question before about asking what principles you should hold a piece of art or a story to, to consider it humanizing is mm. a really important touchstone, you know, to, to deciding that there's, authenticity and value to, to what you're producing. I think, you know, that's why the work you're doing in producing a 
you know, Team Human Manifesto will hopefully be so important because it's something people could come back to and sort of check their work against. Um, I like to tell students that, you know, having a distaste for getting paid to make your art isn't just something to aesthetically do because, hey, that's what artists do. You know, artists are suspicious of money. It's just often the constraints of trying to make money off your art can often constrain what you produce such that maybe it doesn't align with those those things about vulnerability, about making people uh, understand human experience, about co- communicating something empathetic and positive and, you know, about connection. And that there are circumstances where that, you know, that can align, where something can be profitable and meet those things. I mean, they're, they can be rare. And, you know, you got to keep an eye out for them as a as an artist who, you know, wants to have integrity and, and make a living. I think, you know, you asked the question, I, I refer back again, I, I can't say enough about what about what I see in the, the indie game community for, uh, you know, new methods of kind of prototyping and telling stories in that medium. I think, Partially because um, there's not quite as much money involved. There's a lot of interesting experimentation going on there, and you can just you know get on Steam and try out all sorts of things. Uh, mm-hmm. every I know year. it's a little interesting. It's almost like the the indie game community that you see on Steam and in some even some of the the like Android Store and stuff. It's a little bit like the indie. New York indie movie industry of the 1970s, you know, when De Niro and De Palma and Lucas and those guys were just coming up, you yeah. know, making their gritty, you know, taxi yeah. driver kinds of movies. I mean, I'll give you, I love this because, um, so I've always kind of had this this passion about, um, you know, creative coding to some degree, this idea that, you know, I'm in my schooling, I went to school for computer science and I felt like there were you know, a lot of people were kind of critical of the fact that I wanted to make art and design with it, I think precisely because those things appealed to the emotions and were more subjective. And a lot of the people who were attracted to the program at that time, you know, were more interested in only things that could be highly quantified. So that's why I was really attracted to your kind of reambiguation term mm. of, of creating experiences that in some way, you know, be that stories or interactive experiences that don't present things as being so cut and dry. But I, you know, to give you a tangible example, one of the best uh, kind of uh, using an interactive or gaming experience to communicate a point empathetically I've seen was uh, I taught a workshop when Pixar had uh, a Girls Who Code class. We've, we've had uh, them come in for the last three summers. And I, you know, asked if I could develop this, this day to add to their kind of standard curriculum to say, hey, I want to present, you know, I code at Pixar, but I I code in this very specific way where it isn't about the result being absolutely, you know, correct by this exacting standard. It's about when somebody sees the visual result of what I made, does it visually read? Is it beautiful? Does it get the point across? And I kind of, I think there is a tremendous amount of information about out there about how to use a computer or how to learn how to code to, um, you know, m- you know, make the fastest, most functional, most two spec, you know, application, there's not quite as much out there to say, hey, you know, you can use this for artistic pursuits, you know, the, it, it isn't just like money doesn't necessarily pollute art. 
uh, ne- neither does tech. It can be used responsibly if you have good things to sort of hold yourself to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the groups uh, of girls made this uh, this game. It was like a Mario-style kind of platformer where at the beginning of the game, you were assigned a random uh, race and gender. And then you played through the first level. And as you played through it, you collected coins. And then, so say you collected 100 coins. Um, at the end of the game, they told, they reduced the number of coins that you had collected and told you you know, what you got based on the race and gender that you were assigned and the differences in average pay for, for that combination. And it was great because I, you'd see people play it. They personally went through the effort of playing the game and collecting the coin. And then at the end, it was taken away from them. And you'd see people actually get, get angry about it uh, (laughs) because it, uh, and you know, anger, uh, just like awe has a purpose, anger, you know, you feel anger when something seems unfair to you, right? And so by actually having someone embody this very simple situation of coin collection and then having an unfair event transpire, I think they did a really great job of communicating to people with that game, hey, that's that's kind of unfair. And I thought that was just, I mean, it was amazing. It was, uh, you know, it was a group of uh, three juniors in high school made this game and I was like this is br- that's brilliant storytelling that got the point across really really well uh, without being too heavy-handed right and that's what you mean by a short you don't sit with this game for 48 hours no. and get to the end and win the war you t- it's a an experience with a, really a beginning middle and an end mm-hmm. and uh, that, you know that's where I think people are well I mean I bristle a lot at saying that VR is, you know, the, the, the natural evolution of storytelling or is, you know, where everything's going to go because there are such obvious drawbacks to having, you know, a shoebox strapped to your head. And, <laughs> I, you know, I also think if you're not careful with it, you know, you can land in a place where you have the worst of both worlds because the one of the, the magic pieces of, of filmmaking and of linear narrative is that you have complete control of the pace and release of information. You effectively co-opt two of people's senses for a period of time. You get their eyes and their ears. Because they're not making a lot of conscious decisions, I think that's where some of the magic of uh, losing yourself in in a story comes from. Uh, In interactive experiences, I have this kind of pet theory that because you're constantly asked to engage and make conscious decisions and embody something, yes, you can lose yourself, but it's a little bit different because you're not zoning out, right? And so I think, you know, shorts presented in VR that just kind of uh, effectively ask you to push buttons to in a cutscene type way, like make a linear narrative, narrative progress. To me, it takes away the control you have over pacing and release of information in a traditional feature, and it takes away the embodiment of a environment or experience and the exploration of like an open world thing. And it it lands you in this crappy place somewhere in the middle. I mean, this is why we haven't really seen the Moby Dick of choose your own adventure books yet, even though, you know, people have given us that option of, of, you know, we, we've had the ability to, to read narratives like that for a, for a long time. And it just, that format just doesn't seem to work particularly well. Asking somebody to sit down and craft 
a hundred narratives that are as good as, you know, say a feature film or a novel, it's an insurmountable task. It's hard enough to reliably make a single good film, a single good story. You know, so we have to think about the, you know, if, if VR or any kind of interactive thing is going to, you know, be humanizing and teach us something emotionally and help us embody an experience, you have to look at its, its strengths. And to me, its strengths are not the total control over the release of information. They're empathy and embodiment and exploration. And I don't think the, you know, that again, that the answer is going to come from philosophizing. It's going to come from making little tiny games, little tiny shorts, experimenting with mechanics, and then asking people how, you know, how did that, how did that make you feel? Did it work? Was it enjoyable to do? You know, to add to your, your question about, about what points to, to hold a piece of art to, to ask if it's humanizing or dehumanizing, how about asking? <laughs> you know, yeah. how about asking your audience uh, instead of deciding in corporate headquarters, you know? It's, it's like, how did, how did you feel after that? <laughs> yeah, because there's definitely a difference between awe and spectacle. You know, yes. you could do a spectacle that throws someone into something like a state of awe, but it's really just a powerlessness against, mm -hmm. you know, the state or the money or Las Vegas or whatever it is. You're not doing, Las Vegas is not doing this to people in order to rehumanize them. No. No. It's doing it to them in order to, <laughs> to manipulate them. To put them in a state where they forget about time, you know, and right. forget about the concept of, uh, you know, how much money they have. So right. they give it all away. Which is why... I've always trusted these more humble experiences, like video games that are drawn with vector graphics. You know, I don't need all the, the 3D skins or whatever it is that you guys now use on, on graphics. I'll go to a movie for that. But if I'm playing, right. I almost want it to be as simple and iconic as possible. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's also, you know, both intensely personal for people. And it's also mm. important to to really take things for what they are and to, you know, not just assume because something was produced in a certain way, you know, that it's, it's going to be dehumanizing, you know, you gotta, you gotta give stuff a chance. Now that's not, not right. to say there can't be, can't be trends, and, you know, but, uh, there I, can be, but I mean, and that gets to the heart of, you know, so you're at, you know, Pixar, which was Apple or was, was what is Steve Jobs and now is Disney and people would assume that, oh, and it, it happens, you know, so you see a movie like Inside Out mm -hmm. and you're thinking, oh, isn't this really sweet? And it's about a girl's emotions. And like, oh, well, it's Disney. So, you know, it's reducing life to a video game, you know, that the the uh, prejudices we have about where something's coming from. It's like, oh, well, this is necessarily supporting, you know, neoliberalism and uh you know, and uh, <laughs> you know, and, and capitalism. All right, so maybe your seventeen dollar ticket is, but it doesn't mean that the people working on on it aren't like you. You know, looking for how do we open things up? How do we make uh, how do we make the work that we're doing, you know, less of a spectacle, less disempowering, and more empowering and opening? And whether that's subverting the system or using the system or leveraging our work or undermining the work. It gets through. Oh yeah, I mean that's why I'm I'm very thankful for having that you know Pixar as an environment to be creating things in. You know, I mean I would refer you to to the director of Inside Out as an example of, of someone who I think makes some of the you know Pete Doctor makes some of the most humanizing stories between Monsters Inc. and Up and Inside Out. You know, I've 
had a chance to, you know, talk to him personally on many occasions. And he's just, he's a very vulnerable, sensitive, amazing storyteller. And he wants to tell stories to, to, you know, help people feel those same things. So, you know, to me, a lot of times it's about finding the right, you know, an environment that allows people like that to, to make something and having, you know, a company that trusts that when you make something like that, people are going to respond to it. And, you know, hopefully that helps you find those, those rare pockets where something, you know, can both do well, you know, commercially, but also be meaningful to people. I think, you know, for me, Inside Out was one of the best experiences I've had working on something because it's just, I thought while having a, you know, relatively traditional hero's journey narrative, I actually think its conclusion, right, is that you know, you should allow yourself to feel sadness sometimes. Yeah. That, that's a really difficult um, concept to uh, to kind of be heavy-handed about, uh, to, you know, tell right. somebody. They didn't, you know, a, t- a traditional movie, they would, you know, kick her out in some glorious, you know, you get rid of her and crucify her. And it's like, no, you know, then, <laughs> she's you know, part, of, part of this thing. The difficulty of, you know, any storytelling really is, you know, you can't just <laughs> sit there at the end and go, hey, in case you didn't notice, uh, sadness is important, <laughs> right? And you know, <laughs> like, for, for example, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, warning to anyone who hasn't, hasn't seen it yet, uh, you know, sometime kind of near the end of the second act when they lose uh, uh, Bing Bong, Riley's imaginary friend, um, a lot of people refer to that as being kind of a devastating part of the movie to watch because they're really sad and emotional about that loss. I think that's actually a pretty tricky thing because, um, you know, I think having you feel really sad over something at the end of the second act kind of almost physiologically primes you to receive the message in the third act. You're gonna, you're now going to see somebody say, hey... You know, sadness is really important. Well, you as an audience, you just experience sadness. And usually after you feel sad about something, you have this kind of peak afterwards. It, it feels, you feel relieved physiologically after you cry, right? So, mm. so you're now in this state watching the third act, feeling a little better because you've just gone through being sad and you didn't really get to choose not to feel that way. So I think in a lot of ways, you're kind of primed to receive the message because you just went through it. And, um... I don't, that's certainly not anything anyone sat down consciously and said we were going to do, but it's kind of my pet theory that that's one of the reasons the message of that film works is because it actually makes you experientially go through that feeling. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. You mentioned the uh, dichotomy or, you know, the difference between just raw spectacle and awe. I think, you know, big action movies and stuff like that, you're always going to tr- try to have some awe-inducing spectacle in the third act because there's become this tradition almost of like, oh, we got to have this big blowout thing at the <laughs> end because people bought a ticket. Well, I think stuff like, you know, the first reveal of the dinosaur in Jurassic Park in the first act, yeah, that's, that's to me, more awe-inspiring than spectacle. That's asking you to say, hey, like, you're about to be in the environment where these characters are going to have their major journey and they're going to change. You see them going through awe at the same time you feel it over the visuals. So you relate to them a little bit more, um, which helps you invest in their story uh, more. You know, that scene would be a lot less successful if they didn't show you the dinosaur. You just, they just showed them coming back to the hotel and being like, holy shit, did you see that? It was a dinosaur. (laughs) 
You'd be like, well, cool. I'm glad you guys had a nice time. <laughs> but the fact that the visuals make the audience actually experientially go through that, to me, that's like really good filmmaking is you're not communicating it just with the dialogue or just lecturing. You have to put people through that feeling. And by virtue of doing that, they understand because they go through it emotionally. Right. I mean, in, in closing, what, what this conversation also makes me think about is the immense trust that we put in the storytellers to whom we surrender our psyche. Now, you go into a movie, you know, especially if you're throwing on the guy's 3D glasses and sitting in his sense around, it's like you're saying, okay, take me. You know, and some of these people I don't trust and shouldn't trust. Sure. So how, how, do you, how do you suggest people, you know, go into an experience? So you just right. open to it and if they're going to manipulate you, you'll figure it out later and shake it off or... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I won't claim to be an expert about this, but generally what I vote for is just better media literacy. That's why uh, you had that episode uh, a while back about Media Breaker that I absolutely loved about uh. asking, you know, children to re-edit an ad to communicate another message. You know, I think if that's a fundamental part of curriculums, then, you know, what I do when I see a film is I, I go in trusting the filmmaker and I let it totally take me over. And I try, you know, if they do a good enough job that I'm not taken out of it by the craft, I, you know, allow myself to go through the story. And then afterwards, I ask myself very specific questions about, you know, was I manipulated in a way that I liked? You know, uh, what were they trying to do there? What are the, you know, cultural assumptions about the way they showed that suburb operating or people's relationship to the church or, you know, this or that? Mm. And, you know, it took me a excruciatingly long time to know to ask those questions. You know, if I, I would love to see something like that earlier in, you know, e education on media literacy. So because then you don't have to be so worried about the idea of surrendering yourself to the story because you can do it temporarily and then you can consciously ask yourself how you how you felt about it. Right. You've got the tools to uh, to process or digest the experience later if you need to. Yeah, that, that's that's been my strategy anyway. And it's better to have loved and lost, I think, than yeah. <laughs> than never to go in at all. Yeah, I'd rather not, you know, close myself off to to all art because I'm scared of what it might be able to to do to me. You know, I just I trust that I have the the tools to to question it. Right. Right. Um, you know, on your your kind of larger point about you know I I hear the. Uh, a theme running through a lot of these episodes of almost like searching or grappling for that fundamental thing that uh, makes humans humans. Uh -huh. uh, that, that thing that like, hey, if we if we find this thing, you know, technology can never supplant it. Right. Or, and, uh, you know, there, there's a, you know, you, it's almost a faith, you know, to, for a lot of people, faith is that one thing that they, uh, you know, they don't think anything can ever, ever shake it. Uh, I guess that's why... The only thing I've personally found about being human is I think it's that that Simon Pegg movie, the uh, the World's End. At the mm -hmm. end, effectively, this like sentient technology or alien race is going to take over all of all of humanity, and then he basically kind of taps into our collective consciousness and looks at it and goes, "This is it." <laughs> yeah. That that's all, and then it just kind of says like, "You know what? You guys can have it. <laughs> Go nuts." 
And then you think he's going to be tremendously insulted by that, but him and all his drinking buddies end up just being like, yeah! And then they, yeah. and they cheer, you know? So I... You know, I, I read this compilation of poems by Robert Bly called News of the Universe, where he just points out how much Western poetry and literature is invested in human exceptionalism. I think that's just the thing we have to kind of let go of a little bit, is go, you know what? It's enough that we have this cognitive capacity, and we go through emotions, we're biological, we like falling in love, we like to eat, we like these things, and that's 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 enough, just being human is enough. And those are the things that, that's why I, I to me, um, that's why I'm not excited about being involved in the race to emulate our consciousness with AI. I'm much more interested in how to use technology and narrative to make us feel emotions. Because to me, and at least in 2017, that's the thing that feels the most human to me, is the fact that we experience emotions and we don't have a whole lot of control over them. So learning how to deal with them, using them to tell stories and help us make sense of human experience. That's the thing I care the most about. Well, cool. I care about that too. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell. I like it though. It's, I like it. It's, it's sort of, um, it's saying that's enough, you know, it's almost Aboriginal in its, in its, in its approach to say, look, it's not about some progress or reaching some new goal or creating some new, uh, in a new mecca or new multi-dimensional understanding of something. It's like, no, it's reveling in what is rather than something else. Well, because there's a struggle on the side of people who care about reason and consciousness too, because when our technology wasn't even close to, you know, achieving what we can kind of like co- uh, consciously reason about, Nobody had any trouble writing about how we were the most dominant species and how it was our consciousness that differentiated us. And then as soon as, uh, you know, we started maybe getting closer to reproducing that part of humanity, um, people got really, you know, you know, you got people looking to computers as the the new God we were going to worship that, that we birthed ourselves and getting all excited about the singularity and things like that. And, uh, I, I think a lot of it is just struggling with how unsettling it feels to maybe not have our consciousness um, be so unique anymore. Now, you could apply the same criticism to me of saying the way I've dealt with that is to say, well, it's emotions. Emotions are the thing that, that make us unique. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide there until that <laughs> gets run over. Um, but I think that is where I'm going to hide for the rest of my lifespan anyway. I like wow. emotions. At least for now. Yeah. It's fun. The foreseeable future. Right. Feel them while you have them. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> this is Team Human. We've been speaking with Michael Fredrickson, an animator and awe expert. Thanks for joining us on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College. Please remember to come check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash teamhuman or come to teamhuman.fm, click on support and poke around. There's resources, pictures, all sorts of fun things. If you join Team Human as a regular subscriber, you can also join our Team Human Slack channel where we're having some great discussions on the meaning of human life. 
So until next week, I'm Douglas Rushkoff on Team Human. Thanks so much for coming. Please tell the others, forward to your friends, and most of all, enjoy being human. I know I do. 